Listener Production. Welcome to Real Crime. I'm Adam Shand. In 1988, Australia introduced the world's first plastic banknotes. The release was timed for the nation's bicentennial, after more than 20 years' development by the Reserve Bank and the Commonwealth Scientific and Industrial Research Organisation, the CSIRO. Like so many great leaps forward in our history, this one came about because of a crime. In 1966, a group of ordinary suburban guys and one very heavy gangster forged Australia's then-new $10 banknote on a photocopier. Decimal currency had recently been introduced and authorities were confident the new money with its security features could not be cracked. They were wrong. The plot collapsed in treachery and deceit, but the financier was never caught. I had a team, you know, professional thieves. While the government and scientists came up with the plastic notes, Mr Big lived off the funny money for years. Everybody else came to grief. Mr Big tells me there's a moral to this crime story. If you're going to do something shady, don't involve your family. This is it, Geoffrey Mutton thought. His heart was pounding as he pulled a wad of counterfeit $10 notes from the glove box of his HR Holden and headed into the hotel in Melbourne's east. With a watermark and a metallic thread printed onto the surface, the notes were astonishingly good. Almost perfect, but for the feel. At the last minute, the team added floor wax to get the weight right. But still, Mutton was nervous. He wasn't a professional crook, and this was his first job. He was about to launch a bold attack on Australia's new decimal currency. It was December 23rd, 1966, and the banks were closed for Christmas to reopen five days later. Plenty of time to pass $160,000 worth of the notes before the alarm might be raised. Martin hesitantly laid the first tenor on the bar, the face of convict forger Francis Greenway staring up at him from the note. Beer, please, said Mutton, holding his breath. Twelve cents, thanks, mate, said the barman, taking the note without a glance. Mutton watched the barman put the bodgy note in the till and then slap the change in real currency on the bar. Mutton drained the beer in one gulp, a feeling of relief spreading over him. What a lark, he thought. This is dead easy. He repeated the process in every bar in the pub, his confidence growing with each handful of notes he pocketed. He left the pub and headed for the row of shops nearby to cash more. He was soon out of money and rushed back to the car for more. By 11pm, the boot was full of groceries and Mutton had $3,000 of real cash in his pocket. There was another $240,000 of the passable notes buried in the back garden, along with another $600,000 worth of rejects they made in nine months of trial and error. So when was the first day 
that you thought, oh, hello, Dad's up to something? Well, the first day was uh, we're in the back room of the house in Bignall Road and he walked in and he put in a bundle of $10 notes in front of me and said, count this. Ken Mutton is Jeff Mutton's son. In December 1966, he was 19 years old and working at the Commonwealth Bank as a teller. And so I counted it like, you know, you pick it and flick it. And I pulled out about half a dozen or something of there. I said, something wrong with that, <laughs> something wrong with that, something wrong with that. Ken had picked out all the fakes that his father had made. And I said, you are an idiot. I said to him, what are you doing? You know, because he was away all the time at this stage and we never saw him much. So I said to him, you're, a bla- you're an idiot. I said... How obvious were the differences? It was like, uh, you know, a piece of paper when it burnt and it's that crispy, if it went like that, it'd break, sort of that sort of crispy. And the normal $10 is like a piece of rag, sort of. You'd just pick it up and flick it like that. But these were easy to pick, I thought. Well, obviously, because I just picked them all out and I said, you're an idiot. Cracked the shits and snatched it off the toes. Yeah, ah, you're an idiot, and walked out. <laughs> he was shitty. She's going to make millions out of this. And this was the beginning of, you know, I was dead against the whole idea. To this point, Jeff Martin had been disappointed with his progress in life. Outwardly, he looked successful. He owned shops, drove a nice car, and had paid off most of his mortgage. This wasn't enough for him. That was his goal in life, I think. The big money. The bloody money. Geoffrey Mutton wasn't short of good ideas and worked hard to make things happen. However, his schemes had a habit of falling apart. Ken had seen this through his childhood. And when we lived at Rosebud, he made this canoe. And as you walk in the front door's long passage up the side, and the canoe was... In that passage, for it must have been nearly a year because, you know, season to season. So we'd fiddle around and I'd help. And we're all excited. He said, right, it's finished. And it must have been come up to summer. So he got me and me two sisters and we carried it over to the beach. He put it in the water. He said, OK, get in. And we got in and went straight to the bottom. And he said, OK, let's go. Left it there. Just walked, said, come on, we're going home. And left the boat sitting in the water and I turned around and all these kids are jumping in it, having a ball. That's what he was like. Just going from one thing to the next. He just didn't care about it. He said, OK, I've done, spent all that time doing it and carried it all and put it in the water, sunk, forget it, walk on. <laughs> it was obvious to Ken that his dad's new venture was going to sink faster than his DIY canoe and the family would go with it. Mutton was more desperate to strike it rich than ever and was now prepared to risk everything. The world owed him a living, he believed. The tax office had recently served Mutton with a huge bill. He'd been buying and selling retail shops without paying the tax. Now he stood to lose the family home. He was burning with resentment and forging the $10 note would be his revenge. Around this time, the first colour photocopier made by Gestetner was available on the market and Mutton's research told him it could do the job on the $10 note. With a few days' training from Gestetner, his mate Dale Code, a tailor, had learnt enough to run a printing press. A photographer and dot engraver, Ronald Keith Adam, and an artist, Francis John Papworth, were all involved in creating the photo plates and setting up the press. All Mutton needed now was finance. Well, I've put the finance up. I went and robbed the Hampton Hotel. 
28 or 30 thousand dollars there and uh, they put a proposition to me. In 1966, Robert Douglas Kidd was one of Australia's most accomplished crooks, a master safe cracker and a gangster not to be trifled with. Kidd has never before admitted his role in the venture. He'd been a customer at one of Mutton's shops. In mid-1966, Mutton told Kidd he could make the perfect $10 note if Kidd could advance him the $20,000 needed to make the photographic plates and set up the printing press. The machine only cost three or 4000 Told me it cost ten or eleven or whatever and everything. He was robbing me all the way through. What would have happened if you had found out, Bert? <laughs> well, it would have been over pretty fucking quick. Kid told Mutton that each man should be allotted a minimum of $200,000 each, $1.4 million in today's money. But he would cash all the money on behalf of the gang. Some of the forged notes would be sent to money changers in Hong Kong, who would turn them into bona fide US and English currency. And the rest would be used to buy opals from miners in Central Australia, who might not be used to the new money. Kid warned Mutton that cashing notes straight onto the streets would be a fatal error. And under no circumstances should he involve his family. Mutton chose to ignore all this. Kid put aside his doubts about Mutton when he saw the quality of the sample notes. Even if the notes weren't perfect, that didn't matter. The gang would only have to pass them once, and they were good enough for that. Kid was excited, and on December 23rd, he turned up at Mutton's house at 4pm to pick up his $200,000 in fake notes. But Jeff Mutton handed him only $40,000. Well, when I went along to collect me money, it was 40 grand. I said, how come it's 40 grand? I said, we can't go ahead. He said, there's a lot of rejects, you know, when we were printing. I said, this smells, you know. And uh, I blew, but what could I do? I was fucked. Mutton explained that there'd been so many rejects, there was only a total of $160,000 good enough to be passed. And then Mutton broke the news that they would all be cashing their own money. Kid's ingenious plan to cash the money offshore was to be shelved. When Kid protested, another gang member cut him short. That's all you're getting, he told Kid. Kid stood up and unbuttoned his coat to reveal a gleaming 45 caliber automatic in a shoulder holster. He flicked the holding strap off. You're a smarty, he said quietly. How would you like to die? You'd better have your affairs in order, Kid said, according to Mutton. Kid would have shot the man right there, but then he might never have got his money. Keep in mind, they had the upper hand as they had the loot, says Kid now. Kid had no choice but to accept the $40,000 he had. He would later discover that Mutton was in fact sitting on suitcases full of money, as much as $600,000 of varying quality. That night, Mutton's family members, including his brother Des and sister-in-law Moira, were already out cashing the bodgy money. What I heard was Moira went crazy and went was buying push bikes and all sorts of things for the kids. Ken, with his sister and her boyfriend, were also out cashing the money. We're supposed to go take the $10 around and cash them in, buy chewing gum and, or something and that sort of thing. 
Well, she was just like me, just dragged along. Her boyfriend, who was ended up her husband, was a bit... Uh, he was a bit like my old man, a bit money-hungry, I guess, so he would have been keen to be into it. Geoffrey Mutton was whistling cheerfully as he turned the Holden into his street, but as he drove towards the house, he sensed something was wrong. He went around the block and came back slowly. Why was the dog barking like that, he thought. But everything looked all right. He was wrong. At 6pm that night, his sister-in-law Moira had bought a box of chocolates for 65 cents at a corner store using a counterfeit note. This note didn't feel right to the shop assistant and she followed Moira to the car, got the registration number and told police. Not long after, Ken was at home counting the proceeds of the evening's work. Well, they come to the door and I just saw them through the corner of my eye, but I, I don't know whether I was thinking it was police. But anyway, I could see he had a gun. He was standing like this with a gun. And they just burst in and I grabbed the bag and I put it on my bed. Police found 111 forged notes and some real money under Ken's bed. Earlier, $18,000 worth of fakes were seized from Des and Moira's house. Ken tried to say the money had been left on the doorstep, but it was too late for that. When his father pulled into the driveway, he too was arrested. The ringleader was taken to a police station in Melbourne's east, where Kid had some detectives on his payroll. Their brief was to make sure that Mutton didn't implicate Kid. A sergeant asked Mutton who else was involved in the plot. Mutton replied he was acting on his own. The sergeant replied, you fucking well stick to that or you'll be thrown headfirst out of this window. Kid was looking forward to a good Christmas despite the Mutton's misfortune. I got rid of my 40 that night. I had a team, you know, professional thieves. You know, know how to watch their back and all that type of thing. Mutton was given bail, but his dreams lay in tatters. Ten of his friends and family were charged with possession of the forgeries or uttering them, which means cashing the notes. And there was no chance of making any more money. The police had dug up the back garden and found the photo positives in a two-inch piece of pipe buried under a pathway. Somehow they missed $500,000 stashed elsewhere in the yard. Many of these notes were rejects or good notes that didn't have serial numbers. This was Mutton's last chance to salvage something from the wreckage. Mutton offered to sell Kid $200,000 of counterfeit money for $10,000 in real $20 notes. He also asked Kid to mine the other $300,000, plus the printing press and plates. Kid agreed and moved everything to a stable he owned at Flemington. He thought he now had the upper hand. Soon after, police raided the stable but failed to find the equipment. Kid suspected that Mutton, whom he now called the Weasel, had given him up. When Mutton had the gall to try to claim the printing press and money, Kid took a sledgehammer and destroyed it in front of him. He later dumped the pieces in the Yarra River. Mutton wasn't getting his money back either. Geoffrey Mutton was sentenced to 10 years jail for the scam. Needless to say, his son Ken's career at the bank was over from the moment he too was charged. The bank manager came to the door and said, you've got to sign this bit of paper, you're finished. And I said, well, I might come back. And he said, we'll make it hell for you if you come back. And I said, oh, well, signed a bit of paper, that was the end of me. Ken got a 10-year good behaviour bond for his involvement and he avoided jail. 
And uh, like Miss Judy and her husband, they were ruined. My sister still suffers to this day. His sister, who was then pregnant, got a year behind bars. Yeah, she was charged. She actually opened up to me the first time ever. A couple of weeks ago, we went and saw my mother's uh, grave and that, and she had a cup of coffee and sitting there. And the first time ever, she's talked about how they treated her and that. Because she was pregnant, they give her a hell of a time in there. Meanwhile, despite the damage to his family, Geoffrey Mutton was still looking to make money from this disaster. While in jail, he wrote a manuscript called Ten Years for Ten Dollars, a semi-fictional account of the caper, which he saw being made into a Hollywood film. I haven't After read it. Years, I've read started it. to read it and I can hear him talking and it shits me. I don't want to hear it. <laughs> <laughs> I just don't want to hear How it. How far have you got into it? One page. Now desperate to get out of jail, Mutton offered to name Kid as the mastermind to police. He sent a message to Kid that if he didn't give back his money and the wrecked press, he would sign the statements he'd made against Kid, including an allegation that he'd seen Kid give bundles of fake notes to three policemen that he named. Kid declined the offer and was charged, but the fix was in and his corrupt police mates made sure that Kid beat all the charges. Forgery, uttering, and even the safe breaking at the Hampton Hotel that had financed the operation. So Kid walked free and went on to bigger and better things in his criminal career. But Mutton's funny money was a staple earner for the next decade or so. Melbourne Truth, March 6, 1976. Dud $10 notes. Watch out for a new flood of forged $10 notes. That's the mail from sources closely linked to the 1966 counterfeiting operation, one of the biggest ever in Australia. A fresh wave of notes from a cachet of $250,000 is set to hit our streets as crooks offload what the police failed to find 10 years ago while tracking the counterfeiters. The unnamed source for this article was Geoffrey Mutton still seething over the loss of his money. It was dug from its hiding place in a Melbourne suburban backyard while members of the gang were on bail and given to an associate for safekeeping. The man with the money has wide underworld connections and is believed to be living in Queensland. Mutton's mail was correct. Kidd was living in Queensland in 1976 and he was still enjoying Mutton's money. Kidd paid off cops with it and splashed it all over racecourses. He helped mates with families who were down on their luck. He had a lovely time with those tenors, he says. How much in forged money did you end up having? About half a million. How much did you get rid of? The whole lot. Oh, not bad. How, how did you do that? All over Australia, the thieves. You know, they were easy to cash. At Mutton's trial, Reserve Bank officials had dismissed the notes as amateurish. But privately, the central bank was stunned at how easily their new money had been forged. The gang had come very close to undermining confidence in the new currency, just as the bank was preparing to roll out the rest of the new decimal series of notes. Recalling the entire supply of tens was not an option because of cost. Instead, the Reserve Bank withdrew only the notes with serial numbers with the prefix SA and SB, which Mutton's forgers had used. There were 80 different serial numbers on the forged notes, but only two prefixes. This compromise allowed Kidd to keep passing the dud notes to the unsuspecting for the life of that series of notes. The RBA then assembled a think tank of experts that met in the New South Wales ski town of Threadbow in 1968 
They came to the conclusion that any paper note they could come up with could be forged through photocopiers. The only way to beat the Gestetner was to insert optically variable devices, see-through panels and holograms that changed colours with different light conditions and pressures. To make this work on paper banknotes was challenging. David Solomon, then a young scientist at the CSIRO, was an expert in polymer technology after working in the paint industry. He suggested a radical move, making polymer notes with these optically variable devices inserted. It took 20 years and $20 million to get there, but in 1988, the world's first plastic note was in circulation. It was no coincidence that it was the $10 note, marking Australia's bicentenary. Your dad would have enjoyed a bit of notoriety out of all this, the father of the plastic banknote. Well, he would have, yeah, he would have loved all that. That's not how he was, I think. He was playing gangsters in his head, I think. He didn't regret it? Yeah. He regretted getting caught like they all do. <laughs> but he would, how could you not get caught? That's what I can't understand. How could you think you wouldn't get caught? Well, I'm all right at the beginning. He was an idiot. I just think he was a money-hungry idiot. What sort of a person thinks that they're going to get away with that and involved? And even Robert Kidd said, don't involve your family. And he did. So he, he was a fool. He was a fool of a man. Did he reflect on that? Did he acknowledge that later on? Well, I don't think so. Well, he got out of jail and I don't think he ever settled down. Well, he settled down just being retired and doing nothing, but... He wouldn't have regretted it. He would have loved to be sitting here talking to you and wrapping himself up. He would have loved it. He was still James Cagney in his head. (laughs) The man who got away has no regrets. Bert Kidd has shared this and other stories in a biography, The Audacious Kid. So you ended up with the lion's share of those dollars? Yeah, of course. Oh, course. It wasn't a bad exercise in the end, was it? They all fell into place, you know. For Geoffrey Mutton, it couldn't have ended any worse. The counterfeit scam was another moment in life that had promised so much, only to disappoint. The manuscript he wrote remains unpublished. There was no film as Mutton had dreamed of in jail. Now as the time slowly passes, he wrote, the children are growing up and are drifting away to their own lives. The only thing I have left dear to me is my wife. For this, I'm eternally grateful and intend upon my release to try and make up for the unhappiness and trouble I've caused her, by devoting the rest of my days to comforting and making happy this most wonderful woman. He may have been sincere, but Mutton showed the devotion to his wife had limits when he won Tats Lotto. He did win Tats Lotto. He won about 10000 I think, and he bought Mum a fridge, and then he went on a uh, cruise and left us all sitting at home and went, went on his own. On his own? <laughs> yeah. I don't know what that was all about, <laughs> but he just went He's up a, the Murray or something. An, unusual fellow. He was a say. strange man. <laughs> there you go. Mutton's long-suffering wife stayed loyal to him despite all the grief he'd caused her. She stuck by him through all the dreams and schemes that had failed one by one. When it came time for Mutton to die in 2007, he was full of bitter regrets and unrequited ambition. When we went to the hospital to see him, and he's sitting in the bed there, and uh, we just said, this is probably it, you know? And he just looked at us and nodded. He looked really unhappy. His hair was all sticking up, all grey hair just sticking up in the air, and he looked really dishevelled. And I said, well, what's wrong? And he said, shit life. 
that was the last words he'd ever said. Just a shit life. Written and produced by Adam Shan. Audio editing, mixing and original score by Matt Nikolic. Executive producer is Grant Tothill. Associate producer is Sarah Grinberg. Research by Nolly Shand. Listener.